Father in heaven, today we are so grateful for Jesus. We just sang a song asking for more of him for every phase of our life. And every day we need more of Jesus. And I just pray that you would bless us today as we consider your word, as we think more about who you are, as we consider the mystery of the Godhead. Lord, we realize that we are, we are walking on holy ground we're considering things that are beyond human comprehension, and so we need your Spirit. We need you to help us, guide us. Help us, Lord, to uh, not be self-sufficient as we seek to understand these things, but help us to be dependent upon your, you being our teacher and our guide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've heard the story of a, a Christian philosopher and um, theologian, who was traveling one day, and he met a gentleman seated next to him who claimed to be an atheist and uh, believed that there was no such thing as God. And so the Christian said to the atheist, why don't you describe for me, why don't you describe for me the God that you do not believe in? Now, the atheist had never heard that quite before, but he began ticking off his list of reasons why he could not reconcile a God, as the Christians claimed, with the reality that he sees in the world. Things like why there's sin and suffering. Things like a God burning people forever in hell. Things like, and he just went right down the list. And um, when he thought he had said enough to sufficiently satisfy anyone who might believe in this Christian God, the theologian rather astounded him by simply saying, thank you for telling me about the God that you do not believe in. I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> and this is sort of a uh, little illustration, you might say, of the confusion that does exist even within the Christian church about who God is. And I believe the highest calling that we can have, the noblest um, undertaking that we can be a part of is helping to tell the world the truth about God, what God really is, who He really is. And so we're going to be talking a little bit more today about who God is. And um, maybe as we do so, we'll be ha able to have more, um, I won't say arguments, but more evidence to share with those who do not believe in the God that we also do not believe in. And um, I want to begin with the concept that is throughout the Old Testament scriptures, that God is one. And uh, we're going to start in the book of Deuteronomy. There's two verses we'll look at in Deuteronomy here this, this afternoon. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 39 we'll start off with. You see, after the, after the flood and after the Tower of Babel, we see that there were a proliferation of gods. There were, a, uh, there were many different idols that were worshipped, many different superstitions that were established. And, you know, from the astrology, which came soon after the Tower of Babel in Babylon, um, to, to sun worship, there was a making of gods of the created worlds, of the created things, right? And um, you'll remember that Egypt also followed this multi-theistic, this polytheistic thought. In Egypt, there were many different gods. There wasn't just one god. They were not monotheists. Um, you, had, you have, for example, and I don't know much about Egypt. I'm not an expert, but I, I understand they even worshipped cats. 
um, sort of like in India, we have some of the cows, some, some of the different types of, of cows being worshipped. And in, in Egypt, there were cats that were worshipped. And so you see the, 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 um, the, on some of the mummies and even on some of the, the sculptures and so forth, you had the cat eyes that became very popular. And um, it's some of those traditions have still... Um, still may make their impact on society still today. But in, in Egypt, the Israelites were immersed in a multi-theistic, a multi-God way of thinking. And as God led them out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage, the house of slavery, to the promised land, he was educating them or maybe re-educating them in who he was. You remember that they had pretty much forgotten about Sabbath observance and he had to teach them how to observe the Sabbath again with the whole manna story and, and so forth. And so there was a, there was a reformation of the, of the church, bringing them back to an understanding of who God was. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, and it says this, Know therefore this day, and consider it in your heart, that the Lord, He is God in heaven above, and upon the earth beneath, there is none else. You see, God says to the Israelites, think about this, ponder it, let this be something that you talk about, that you discuss. There is only one God, and it's the true God of the Israelites. There's, there's not a, there's not a, a God or, or, or some gods in this place and that place. There's only one God. There's only one God. Now, of course, there's other, there are other powers that be out there, aren't there? But they are subordinate to the one God, the one power, and that is the God of the Bible. And so uh, God is trying to teach the Israelites this. Now let's look at the next passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. And we read this earlier today. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This is the Jews, probably the equivalent of John 3.16 for the Jewish nation. And um, I won't try to say it in Hebrew, but just like John 3.16 is the best known Christian verse that uh, the New Testament you know, Christians believe in and memorized. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and uh, verse 4 is the one verse that is probably the most memorized verse in the Hebrew culture. And it says simply this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is, what does he say? One Lord. One Lord. Very, very, uh, very, very clear. Very, very uh, exclusive. There's no such thing in God's way of thinking as polytheism. And uh, so the, the reason I believe that God was emphasizing this in Deuteronomy was because he was trying to teach Israel his oneness. Now, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that we don't understand completely about God, and I'm not going to try to explain or try to, try to describe what I don't understand myself. There, there are things that we don't understand that we, we think, you know, mathematically, we think one is only one, and uh, one cannot be two, or one cannot be three, right? We have that sort of mindset ingrained in us. And so, while we emphasize the oneness of God in the Old Testament, and certainly God emphasized it to the Hebrews, He also would go about to emphasize the plurality of that one God. And this is something that is just amazing. It's, it's a mystery that we don't fully understand. The mystery that we're going to be looking at here a little, a little more in, in greater detail. So I want us to, to move on now to God as 
plural. And we're going to be looking in the scriptures at this, and we're going to be um, describing, uh, seeing how the Bible describes God as not just one, but also as more than one. And uh, did you have something you want to say? Okay, yeah. So, as we turn to the book of Genesis, and I'd like for you to turn with me there, we find that the very term used for God is a plural term. It is a term that is not singular, but, but plural. And um, f- for those of you who know other languages, this makes more sense. In English, we're a little bit limited, aren't we? Because our pronouns, well, we have he versus them. We have singular and plural. But a lot of our, a lot of our words and nouns and verbs and adjectives don't reflect gender or number. And um, the Hebrew does. And so here we have the first, very first verse of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or the heaven and the earth. This was, a, this was an act of creation, obviously, you know, as we believe this took place. And at, at first glance, from the English perspective, When it says God created the heavens and the earth, this is singular God, and this would match with our idea of oneness, right? This would match with our idea of God being one God. But if we were to read again in the Hebrew, the word there is Elohim, and in Hebrew, every time you have the ending im, it's sort of like an s in English. It makes it plural, right? Sheep versus sheeps. No, just kidding. But most words in English, you add an s on the end, and it becomes plural, right? And so... The, uh, the Hebrew word, when it says Elohim, it's God, but it's, it's, it's really sort of like translated gods. In the beginning, gods created the heavens and the earth. Now, I'm glad that the English Bible doesn't do that because it would cause a lot of confusion, wouldn't it? With this oneness concept and yet with this, with this plural concept. I guess I shouldn't say it would cause a lot of confusion because the Hebrew Bible did it and it didn't seem to cause a lot of confusion to the Jews. But notice, with, even without the without the English conveying the number of the, of, the, of the noun there, notice with me that the meaning is very clear as we look on it later in the chapter. Verse 26, and God said, now does God sound singular or plural? It sounds singular. And God said, let us, if you had spell check right there, Microsoft would go crazy, right? Because God, singular, said, let us, plural. But the translators did it right. The translators did it right because God was speaking in the plural. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Notice with me down a few verses later, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, once again, God is speaking And he says, the Lord God said, behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he sent man out of the garden of Eden. We can look on through the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 11 and verse 7. This is God speaking from heaven as he views what's happening after the flood, as they've built the Tower of Babel, and he's just about to confuse their languages and scatter them upon the face of the earth. And the Bible says, beginning in verse 6, the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, 
And they have all one language, and this they will begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they might not understand one another's speech. And so, I understand that this is a foreign concept to us, but we have to grasp the fact, not that we have to necessarily understand it. You understand there's a difference between believing something and understanding it? There are some things we are asked to take by faith. There are some things that just don't, I mean, people describe to me the whole concept of infinity. I believe it as the definition. Does my mind really wrap around it? No. Eternity is the same way. There are things that baffle my mind about eternity. The Bible says, though, that there's going to be no death, that there will be no end of time. Eternity, forever and ever, amen, right? And I can believe that, but I don't understand it. I, mean, I can understand, okay, I can understand this much. I can understand starting now, you know, I was born 20th century, starting now, no end. I can understand that. That's sort of, I can wrap my mind a little bit around it. But the idea of eternity not having a beginning either? Now that's where I just fall off the bus. I just can't really comprehend it. I mean, this is the type of tricks my mind does. Maybe you... Maybe you've resolved these things better than I have, but when I think of, of eternity, no beginning and no end, I'm thinking, okay, there must have been a time when God created his first creation outside of himself. Okay, if that's true, then, wait a minute, for just as long, an eternity before that, he existed with no creation. That's hard for me to imagine. But if my first premise is not true, there wasn't a time when God first created something outside of himself, then creation is infinite. And that also blows, I just can't, either way, I blow a fuse. Either way, I can't really wrap my mind around it. So there are some things I just have to accept by faith, right? Some things, some things I just have to say, you know what? God's word says it. And if God says it, I believe it. And some, one of these days, maybe I'll understand it better. Maybe when our feeble brain gets a little bit of an update, um, upgrade that I think God is going to give us one of these days. Um, and of course, he wants to give us every day as we come into contact with him. But here we have this concept, an intention between oneness and plurality, singularity and plurality. And as I was reading about this, I came across a, a, a research paper done. It wasn't a research paper. It was a doctoral thesis done by a student uh, um, at Notre Dame. And it was, I read, I didn't read the whole thing. I read the abstract. And the paper was on the ontology and epistemology of numbers. Basically, the whole doctoral thesis was discussing whether one was really one. And I thought, okay, somebody's, <laughs> somebody's spent a lot more time thinking about this than I probably ever will. I'm going to accept the fact that God says he's one. And we're going to, ex- we're going to look more at the, what the Bible says about how he is more than one, how he is plural. Okay? So if we move on to Exodus chapter 23, Exodus chapter 23, I want to look at another verse there. Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21. This is a verse we referred to this morning. I just wanted to spend a little more time to contemplate what it implies for us as we consider the multiplicity of God's nature. Verse 20, it says, Behold, I send 
an angel before thee. And in my Bible, that, that word is capitalized, right? The, the word angel. Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. Behold, and it sent an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. My name is in him. Now, I believe that this angel that God is speaking of here is none other than Jesus Christ. And he's speaking in the first person, I send an angel. Who was going to send Jesus? God the Father, right? God the Father. So here you see at least plurality, right? Duality in the nature of God. Or all the way back in Exodus chapter 23, you see God sending an angel who had the power to forgive sins, the power to, to either forgive or not to forgive. And that, of course, is a a characteristic of God. Once again, Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48. And this is one of the clearest verses in the Old Testament where we actually see a triune God. We see the, uh, the, the Spirit itself being listed. And that's what we're going to... We're going to spend a time looking specifically at the Spirit this afternoon as well because this is a question that many have. The Spirit seems to have less of a visible role in the Godhead. From the very beginning, although if we go look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we saw the Spirit of God moving upon the waters, right? So from the very beginning, the Bible talks about the Spirit. But the Spirit seems to have more of a supportive role. You know, when describing the body of Christ, doesn't Paul use the type of description that every, every person, every part of the body is important, even the parts that don't have as open and upfront a role? Doesn't, doesn't Paul talk about that? And sometimes we tend to think of, you know, it's the pastor up front that's, that's the important part of the church, that's the, you know, the, the essential part of the body. Let me tell you, you become a pastor, you learn right away that you can do a lot of things, but you're only a part of the body. And even though you may get more of the credit than you deserve, there's all the other parts of the body that make it function. Does that make sense? And the Holy Spirit, I think, is, is, is a similar situation. It's not the upfront, visible personality of the Godhead, but it is behind the scenes, supportive role, and we're going to talk more about how each part of the Godhead is, um, is subordinate to one another here in a few minutes. But let's look here in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Mine hand has also laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand up together. Now, who does this sound like it's describing? From what we know about the rest of the Bible's texts about the Creator and, and who He is. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? I am the I am. I'm the first. I'm the last. He's identified just that way in Revelation. And he's the creator. So he goes on and he says, All ye assemble yourselves and hear, which among, them hath, which among them has declared these things? The Lord has loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. I, yea, I have called him, speaking of um, the Chaldeans. Come near to me, verse 16, and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God... Now, he's speaking first person, and he says, the Lord God, who would he be referring to? He'd be talking to the, about the Father, right? Now, I, the, uh, and the Lord God, um, it says in verse 16, and his Spirit has sent 
me. There are many times when we say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And we relegate that definition of God in John 3.16 to simply God the Father. When I don't know if biblically we are justified in doing that. The Spirit was a part of sending Jesus as the Savior as well. The sacrifice of Jesus in our behalf was a united decision of each member of the Godhead. It was Jesus was involved in it, the Spirit was involved in it, the Father was involved in it. And we see here the Spirit also being listed as having sent Jesus um, in Isaiah chapter 48. Jesus, uh, the Spirit was a part of that decision. Isaiah chapter 63, uh, moving on. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7. And, uh, and onward. Isaiah 63 and verse 7. It says, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which He has bestowed on them according to His mercies and according to the multitude of His loving kindnesses. Whoever believed that the Old Testament God was just a, a tyrannical, fierce God and the New Testament church uh, God was a loving God maybe hasn't read Isaiah very well, you know? Um, the gospel comes through so clearly here in Isaiah chapter 63. And um, he goes on and he says, and for, thus, for he said, surely they, will, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. Here you have that angel reference again. I think, um, anyone here have a New King James, one of the modern translations that has the, is the angel there capitalized? Do you see that in uh, verse 9? In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Jesus is referred to once again as the angel of the Lord. And here it's called the, called the angel of his presence. They saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Do you see Jesus is being sent as the Savior, but they're rebelling and vexing who? The Holy Spirit. And therefore he uh, was turned to be their enemy and fought against them. And, uh, and so forth. Then he remembered the days of old. And uh, let's skip down to verse, verse 14. As the beast goes down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Once again in Isaiah, you have a picture of the Trinity involved together in salvation. The Savior being sent, the Savior being their Redeemer, and the Spirit working to try to teach people and them resisting the Spirit. And so there's a conflict between the hearts of men and the Spirit. Now I want to look more closely at this Spirit because we've talked already a little bit about it from the Old Testament. We've looked at how the Old Testament presents uh, the Spirit as being part of this salvation process. But let's look a little more closely at this, these passages. And um, we'll start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, I know this is familiar to all of you, and so we won't spend much time here. But 
The Bible says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So here we have in the very first chapter, the very first verses of Genesis, we have a mention of the Holy Spirit. Um, so it's not as though the Spirit is just some, something that's really obtuse and difficult to see. It's just that it didn't fulfill the same role in the Godhead that the other parts of the Godhead did. And so if we look in the New Testament here, we've, looked at, we've already looked in Isaiah at a couple other verses about the Spirit. I want to look at some of the New Testament evidence. We're going to see the, about, about the Holy Spirit that it is not just the presence of Christ or the influence of Christ. The Holy Spirit in the New Testament is presented as a part of the Godhead, a part of God Himself. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, and we're going to look here um, at the example, the story of Elizabeth and Mary. Or this is just Mary, actually, to begin with. Um, It says, verse 35, Then the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And um, once again, if we understand Hebrew parallelism, the way they spoke, when the angel says this, he's saying the same thing in two different ways. It's not just Mark Finley that says the same thing, you know, over in different words. And that's sort of a Hebrew tradition, was parallelism. They would either do... They would either do a positive-negative parallelism where they'd say something and then the opposite and then it's like A-B-A-B or A-B-B-A or just A-A, you understand? They would just say the same thing in different words. And this is a common um, Hebrew liturgical or um, literary technique that was, was, was used. And here he says, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. He's actually saying the same thing in different words, in other words. And uh, this becomes clear in a, in a little while. Therefore, also that holy thing that shall be born unto thee shall be called the Son of who? God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. You see, God, the Holy Spirit is the Son of the Highest, and, um, or the, the, the Spirit of the Highest. Um, he is the Highest. He's a part of the Godhead. Um, we look on in Acts chapter 5. I want to look at a couple of verses here about the Holy Spirit real quickly, because you know, within the Christian church and even within our church, there is sometimes discussion about the Trinity, discussion about the Godhead. There is, a, there is the fact that some of our early pioneers did not believe in the Catholic, what they call the Catholic view of the Trinity, which tried to make God into a three-headed beast, essentially one God with three different heads. Um, and I would argue two things. I would argue, first of all, that the early Adventists, some of them clearly changed their position as they came to understand more of what the Bible taught. The second thing I would argue is that the understanding of the Trinity, which some of them were arguing against, is not today's understanding of the Trinity. It's, very, it's actually very different. We see, we see it differently than what they were arguing against. But that, this has confused some who say that, you know, this, is a, this idea of the Trinity is a, an invention of, of recent times. It's a part of the medieval church. It's a part of the false theology that they developed. I believe it's a very clearly biblical message that we see God being one, but God also being three in one, united. Uh, yes. There were some. There were some early Adventists who were opposed to the idea of 
the Trinity. And they had, some of them believe, for example, that Jesus was sort of adopted at the age of 12. That's sort of a, um, one of the adoption theories. That's one of the, it's not just, I mean, within Christianity, there have been people who believe that. Um, others believe that he was somehow begotten some time in the eons of eternity, but he was, he was not eternally present. And um, this, of course, is not what we teach as a church, and it's not what um, I believe the Bible teaches, um, and certainly not what the Spirit of Prophecy teaches either. But here we have Acts chapter 5. Let's look in verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, you remember the story here, right? Ananias and Sapphira, we don't have to go into all the details. They sold land. They pledged land to the cause of Christ. And when they sold it, they came claiming that they were giving the entire proceeds of the sale to the church, when in reality they were pocketing some of it, and, um, and which was their right to do, right? Yes. They could have said, we'll give X amount of a sale to the, to the Lord, but they were not, they were being devious about it. They were being deceptive, and they were, they were, they were claiming to be doing something they weren't doing. And remember, this is the New Testament church in its purity. This is after Pentecost. This is a time when they had come together and put sin out of their life, and the church was pure, and the church was, as it's represented in the book of Revelation, like a, like a white horse with Christ leading it to battle. Um, and God was, God was not pleased this type of sin would be brought into the community of faith in such a deceptive way. And it says, Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? Lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto God. Now, in verse, verse, four, verse 3, he says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. And here you have in verse 4, just one verse later, you have not lied unto men, but unto God. Did Peter think the Holy Spirit was God? Absolutely. There was no question in Peter's mind that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, that Ananias and Sapphira had lied to, was just as much God as Jesus was. You have not lied unto men, but unto God. And of course, you know what happened there. Um, they were taken out. First um, Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11. We could spend a lot of time talking about spiritual gifts. That's not the topic of our conversation today. But I want to look qu quickly at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see evidence. And I, this is one of my favorite verses for showing that the Holy Spirit is not just the Spirit of Jesus. Like you and I have a spirit about us, you know, we have an influence or it's not, no. The Holy Spirit is an actual person, personality with the power of choice. And we see here a list of the different workings of the spirit in verse 6 and onward. Verse 7, not only just start reading verse 7, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit from it. For unto one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, and to another different kinds of tongues, and another the interpretation of tongues. But all these 
works that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. And I don't know, maybe you can read to me in a newer translation. What does the last part of verse 11 say? The spirit divides to each person individually as, what does it say? As he decides, as he wills, as he alone decides. Anything else? The idea is very clear from this passage that the Holy Spirit has the capacity to make choices determining who receives what gifts. Does that make sense? Now, listen, you can have a, a, a very strong spirit about you. Some people you walk by and you just sort of have to smile because of the influence of their presence, right? Have you ever been around someone like that? They just have this, this you know, charisma, maybe positive. Sometimes I think it's the Holy Spirit, the angels that are around them. Um, do you know, this is, this is not something clearly in, in the Bible, but although we could probably look at a couple of passages that elucidate it, but Ellen White says that if we're, if we're walking with Jesus, His angels are around us. And those angels actually convey the atmosphere of heaven to those we're around. Isn't that amazing? That's a spirit that each of us possesses. But let me tell you, the Holy Spirit is not a spirit, just the spirit of Jesus in that sense. Because you can have a powerful spirit around you, but that spirit has no capacity to make determinations or decisions. Does that make sense? It can't make choices. I don't care if you have a positive spirit or a negative spirit around you. It, the spirit itself cannot choose anything. It's all a reflection of you and who you are. But this spirit, Paul says, the Holy Spirit, actually chooses. When a person is born into the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit chooses what gifts they'll be given as an act of willful decision, divides to each man individually as he wills. So you can't tell me that the Holy Spirit is just the Spirit of Jesus, like the presence of Jesus. No, the Holy Spirit, only a person can make decisions and choices. And that's what the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is a part of the Godhead. Now we find here in Matthew chapter 12, let's look back there. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 32, speaking in context of the Holy Spirit, we find that even during the ministry of Jesus, as he is um, describing some serious, serious sins, the Holy Spirit is elevated in the teaching of Jesus. Notice with me, why don't we read verse 31 for context. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be, given, shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Verse 32, Whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Now let me just ask you these questions. Would it make sense for the Holy Ghost to be Jesus' Spirit? No, absolutely not. The idea that the Holy Spirit is just the Spirit of Jesus would make what Jesus is saying here a bunch of jibber-jash. I mean, you just couldn't make heads or tails of it. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is a separate being, a separate entity. Not only that, would it make sense that, Je that the Holy Spirit is somehow less divine or less important than Jesus? No. In fact, you can speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but you can't offend the Holy Ghost and still be forgiven. Now, before we, before we leave that topic, and I don't want to go into great detail about the unpardonable sin here, but the Holy Spirit is not easily 
offended. Praise the Lord. Do you remember we read in Isaiah about the Holy Spirit working for our salvation and yet people not, people resisting and so they made, he became their enemy. Remember that verse in Isaiah 63? So you have, the, you have the Holy Spirit working for our salvation. We'll talk about that more in just, in just a minute. The Holy Spirit's working for our salvation as, as a person resists that Holy Spirit. This is the way I like to explain it. As the, Holy Spirit, as the person resists the Holy Spirit, it's not that the Holy Spirit becomes personally offended and says, well, you know, I'm just going to take my toys and go home. You know, that's not the attitude the Holy Spirit has. The Holy Spirit has all the attributes of the rest of the Godhead. Long-suffering, merciful, right? Patient. It's, it's wanting unselfishly to give itself for us. But there comes a point where no matter how loud the Holy Spirit is yelling in our ears, we've become so accommodating to its, to its, to its, to its sound. We've become so acclimatized. Sort of like a, you know, if you, put a, if you drop a frog into boiling water, don't try this at home, but I've heard that if you drop a frog into boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put it in the pot and you very slowly raise the temperature to boiling, it won't, it'll never jump out. It'll sit there and cook. Because being cold-blooded, it takes the temperature of the environment around it. It, it, can't, it can't sense differential. So it becomes acclimatized to the hotter water. You want to try an inter- You can try this at home. Um, go home and put, um, put, get, a, get, get two pots of water and fill one with as hot a tap water as you can take it from, the, from your sink. And um, the other put with water and ice cubes. And put, both, put one hand in each of those pots for a minute. Or if you can handle a little longer, that's fine. Maybe two minutes. Hold them, uh, not boiling, just as hot as you can handle. Don't, don't hurt yourself. But put ice water in this pot, hot water in this pot. Put one hand in each pot for a minute or two. Now have a third pot or the sink may be filled with just lukewarm room temperature water. And when you take those hands out of those pots and you put it in the sink of lukewarm water, this hand is going to say that water is hot. This hand is going to say that water is cold. And it's exactly the same temperature. It's a bizarre experience to have. Because you know that water is the same temperature, but this hand says it's warm, this hand says it's cold, and it's the exact same water. Because even as in our physical nerves, we do not sense absolute temperature, we sense relative temperature. What happens is, as the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart, our hearts either become softer or they become harder. Okay? You cannot hear the truth without something changing in your heart. Because either we're going to become softer as we open our hearts to His Spirit's working, or become harder as we close the avenues of the soul and we resist the Spirit's working. And when we resist, when we make ourselves an adversary to the Holy Spirit, we become less and less capable of hearing His voice. Did you hear what I said? I did not say He becomes less capable of loving us or of saving us. I said we become less capable of hearing his voice until the time comes when we cannot hear his voice. And that's the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's not that the Holy Spirit says, okay, you've reached a line arbitrarily, you're cut off. No, the heart of Christ yearns after every one of his his children. 
the heart of the Holy Spirit works and wants and desires a relationship with every single person. But there comes a point where we become deaf, desensitized. And uh, some people have come to me and said, you know what, I'm afraid I may have come to that point. And um, I've always told them this, listen, if you're afraid you've come to that point, I can pretty much tell you you haven't. Because the Holy Spirit is bringing you to be concerned about your religious conviction. And one of my favorite books, Steps to Christ, says it this way, every longing after the soul, of the soul after righteousness is evidence of the Holy Spirit's working in the heart. And so I, I'm thankful that, for that promise of the Holy Spirit. Are you thankful for the Holy Spirit? So what Jesus says here, there's a lot of things we can, we can pull out of this little verse here in Matthew 12, and verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks a word against the Holy Ghost, it will not be forgiven him. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is different than Jesus. Clearly, he is not a lesser important personality than Jesus. He is, I believe, a part of the eternal Godhead. Now, this is very interesting. This is one of my favorite parts of this, and this is something that if I had more time, I would like to spend more time studying. Maybe you can study it and share some things with me. But I have just been fascinated with the concept of mutual subordination within the, within the Trinity, within the three members of the one Godhead. You know, there are so many practical applications that can be made to this, to this study. Because remember that the, the unity of God, three and one, is also a, 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 a similar mystery that, uh, as the unity between God and man. Remember, Paul says, but I speak regarding Christ and the church, that just like, just like a man and a wife, a husband and wife, two become one, Again, not mathematically, not, uh, not, not, the, not you know, the way we would generally think, but two become one. Christ and church becomes one, just like he says, I want to be one with you, just like I am one with the Father, right? This, these relationships. So if we could understand better the mutual subordination of the Godhead, we would be able to understand better how it is that we are to be submitted to Christ and how it is that we are to submit to one another in the body of Christ and in relationships such as marriage. There has been this concept um, within the Christian world for a long time that male headship somehow uh, involves dictatorship. You're familiar with that idea? That is, a, as, a, as because the, the, the father is the priest of the family or the head of the home, that that somehow there's a subordination of the wife to the man, but not the other way around. But what we see in the Godhead is actually there's mutual subordination. It seems to me, and this is sort of the tip of the cusp, I wish I could spend more t time studying it, it seems to me that the responsibility of the, fa of the father or the husband is not so much to be the one who doesn't submit as it is to be the one who leads in demonstrating how to mutually submit to one another. Notice what happens in the Godhead. John chapter 5. And uh, John, we'll start at John chapter 3, actually. Let's look at first how the Father submits. John chapter 3. And uh, we'll read verse 35, and then we'll go to John chapter 5. John chapter 3 and verse 35. Speaking of, of God, and once again we have, we have the... In verse 34, another passage which speaks of all three, 
For he whom God hath sent speaks the words of God. For God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. Powerful verse. Powerful verse. This is John the Baptist talking about Jesus as the one God had sent. And he says, For he whom God has sent, Jesus, speaks the words of God. For God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. Do you understand what that means? What, do we have any other translations here? What does it say? For he is sent by God. He speaks God's word. For God gives him the Spirit without limit. For God gives him the Spirit without limit. Immeasureless. I mean, most of the time we, we sort of, you know, if you're making a recipe, what do you do? You measure something out, right? You put a cup. Imagine if you had an infinite amount of sugar in your cookies, right? Some of the kids would think that'd be a good thing. The parents would not think it was a good thing. Um, without limit. For most of us, when we receive the Holy Spirit, you know, we receive the Spirit proportionate to how we ask for it and the use we're going to make of it. I believe that's what's demonstrated in the Bible. If we're really wanting it and if we're really going to use it, if we're going to use it for our own self-glory and self-gratification, is God going to give it to us? No. He gives us as much of His Spirit as He can, proportionate to how much we're going to desire it and how much we're going to use it for His glory. Okay? But that's not the way the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus. The Holy Spirit worked through Jesus without limit. As much of the Holy Spirit as was needed, Jesus had. Isn't that powerful? It, I believe that we should be looking for more of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that we're ever going to come as as fallen human beings, to the point where, like Jesus, we are given the Holy Spirit without limit. But I think we can have more than we have. I really think, I think we can. But notice here, the Father gives the Son the Spirit without limit. Again, we have the three. Verse 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has what? Given Him all things, or given all things into His hand. So do you see how the, father's, the Father loves the Son? There's a relationship here, Right? Within the Trinity, there's a relationship, and the Father gives everything to the Son. There's a, there's, a, there's a submitting of the Father to the Son, in a sense, because the Father gives those roles to the Son, and the Father is willing to step back out of those roles. No, notice with me in verse five, uh, chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse 22. It says, specifically, one of those roles which the Father has given to the Son... It says, for the Father judges how many people? No one, but has committed all judgment to who? To the Son. So it's not that God the Father is incapable of judging, is it? No. But there are specific roles within the Godhead. And it's not that Jesus is better than the Father, or Jesus is more important than the Father. They're equal. They're equal. They're equal in, in every way. But they have different roles. Different roles in equality is a biblical concept. And if it, it, it indicates that the Father is willing to, to give certain things to Jesus, Jesus is willing to accept it, submit to it, and they are respecting each other's roles. Does this make sense? Within the Godhead. This is a mutual subordination 
that I see taking place in the Scripture. Notice with me how John describes Jesus in similar ways. John chapter 5 and verse 19, the same, same passage. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees, what? Who? The Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Isn't it amazing? They're both God. They're, all, they're equally God. But the Father says, no, I'm not going to judge. Jesus is the judge. Jesus says, no, I, I'm not going to do things by myself. I'm going to do what he says to do. There's, there, neither of them are taking a mastery position over the other. They're both mutually dependent, mutu- mutually uh, subordinate or submitted to one another. Notice verse 30. John chapter 5 and verse 30, I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see why they're one? Does this give us any insights as to how we can be one? Do you understand what I'm saying? Is we, if we understand yeah, how we can be one with each other, there's... There's a, an allowance of people in the body of Christ, and I'm not going to get too much off the subject here, but in the body of Christ, clearly God assigns different people different roles. Disunity happens when we think we should be worrying about the roles of other people. Instead of being mutually subordinate, respecting the roles that God places in the body. It's a powerful key And it's all exemplified in the example of the Godhead. I think it's a similar application can be made to being one with our spouses. It's something that we have to we have to learn to be more like Jesus. Uh, John chapter eight and verse twenty-eight. We haven't turned there already. John chapter eight and verse twenty-eight. Still looking at how Jesus submits. John eight and verse twenty-eight. He says. Then Jesus said unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. Um, Verse 29, He that has sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please Him. Now let's look at the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's mutual subordination as well. John chapter 15, a few chapters over. Further along in the gospel according to John, John 15, verse 26, speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of who? He shall testify of me. And ye shall bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. So the Holy Spirit is not out to do his own thing, is he? The Holy Spirit's not out to make his own name. The Holy Spirit's role is to testify of Jesus. And you're going to know it's the Spirit because what the Spirit teaches you is going to match what Jesus taught. You're going to test it by what Jesus said, by the words of Jesus. And by the way, today there is within Christianity at times, there's a tendency to be so open to the Spirit or the supernatural, which we call the Spirit, that we fail to test what the Spirit is teaching by the words of Jesus, by the Word of God. That's not 
intended. Here he says, you will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. You're going to know what the Spirit says matches what I've said. And there's a camaraderie there. There's a, a compatibility there. John chapter 16 in verse 13. Again, speaking of the Spirit. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. So the Spirit, not only does the Father submit to the Son, the Son to the Father, but the Spirit also is submissive to the Godhead and does its job, its part, plays its role in um, not exalting itself, but in exalting the others and in um, teaching the things that it's been assigned to teach. Look with me in Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. Now that we have this sort of backdrop for an understanding of the Spirit, haven't we seen this morning that, the, that Jesus is absolutely divine? The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, I am that I am. We've seen evidence this afternoon that the Holy Spirit is also divine, a part of the Godhead. Notice with me, we're going to look now at how the three of them work together for the salvation of men as we close up here this afternoon. Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. If we turn there, we see, um, we see an instance of the three being present all at once, all at the same time. Luke chapter 3 and verse 22, this is a, an account of the baptism of Jesus. And uh, we'll read verse 21 for context. Now when all the people came, were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son in whom in thee I am well pleased. Do you see all three of them in this verse? You see the heavens opened and the voice of the Father, uh, who we call the Father in heaven, God the Father speaking and saying, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Ghost is there in form, actually, visible form. Not very often do we see it in visible form, Pentecost, a few other times. But the Holy Spirit is there in the form of a dove, and He says, in you I am well pleased. So we have the Father's voice, the Spirit's presence, and we have Jesus there as the Son of God. Yes? So, looking on, let's look at a couple verses here about how all three are involved in our salvation, and then we're going to call it a day. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. This is Paul saluting the church at Corinth, and um, he says... Greet one another with a holy kiss. Um, we sort of don't practice that anymore, and um, maybe more sanitary that way. But um, you understand many cultures, they will brush cheeks as soon as they come into church. Have you ever been to a part of the world where, or even you watch television, the dignitaries when they meet each other, they, you know, they... That's all from the biblical culture still in different cultures of the world today. All the saints salute you. In verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Again, you see all three of them, don't you? You have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Peter, addressing the church, um, says something similar. At least we get some of the same concept from 
what Peter says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, with the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the what? Spirit, unto obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have Jesus Christ. Peter is saying all, all three are working together for your salvation, for your, um, for your sanctification. Continuing on, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Matthew 28 and verse 19, familiar passage to all of us. It says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Why would Jesus say that we ought to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because all three are a part of our salvation. All three are necessary for our salvation. And God would have us, God would have us believe in His Word, in His Word's teaching, that God is not just, God is one, yes, but God is more than one. And as we study this, as we try to understand it more, we can actually, with these understandings, we can be renewed in the very image of God. Think about this for a minute. God made man in his image, right? God said, let us make man in our image. One of the ways that God made man in his image is he made us with the capacity and the need for relationship, different types of relationship. But I want to say this. We cannot be restored into the image of God alone. There are some people that say, well, you know, I really don't, I really can't handle the church, whether it's because of the organization or whether it's because of the hypocrites there, whether it's because of whatever else. I'm a believer in Christ, but I just don't have fellowship. And I say, wait, 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 wait a minute. You don't understand what God wants to do in your life. In order for you to be restored into the image of God, you have to be more than an independent atom. Because God is not an independent atom. You have to be brought into a relationship where you have to learn to submit like God submits within the Godhead. That can happen in the church. That can happen in the body of Christ. That can happen in the families, right? It's all a part of God's plan to restore us back to the image of God, which includes relationship. And it has to, it cannot happen, my theory maybe, but I think what we've looked at today would, would support it. It cannot happen if we're just independent atoms. God brings us into relationship so that we can have our characters refined and we can become more like God. That's my desire. How about yours? Amen. Would you like to have that experience? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us the word of God. 
Thank you for giving us some glimpses of who you are. We know you're not just one among, one among many gods. We know there's only one true God. And yet we also see that that one true God has more than one personality and more than one person or being involved, each being mutually submissive and thus united perfectly with one another. Lord, I pray that in the relationships you've brought us into as family of, the family of God, that you would work to restore us in your image. Lord, it crosses our self. It crosses every fiber of our fallen nature. And yet we want to be more like Jesus, only by his grace, only by his strength, can we be restored. We thank you for the Father and the Spirit who were willing to send the Son. We thank you for the Son who was willing to die. We thank you that all three are today working for our salvation in their respective roles. Lord, we just pray that we might cooperate in that work, that we might one day come to know more about you because we can see you face to face. We can walk with you and enjoy the relationships with you that you made us to enjoy as relational beings created in your image. And throughout eternity, we can enjoy that, the perfect peace that comes from surrender, even surrender and submission to one another. Lord, I just pray that that would be our experience soon. We can see you face to face, and we can know the one that we've believed in, the one that we've trusted in. And I just thank you for all these blessings. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.